All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We have an epic episode for you. This is going to be a deep exploration of seven things you can worry about or you can be excited about in medtech. We'll talk about inflation. We'll talk about bear or bull markets, the FDA, the power and potential of connected health, the power and risks of AI, workforce issues that are going on, and what the fundraising market looks like. We're going to cover all issues in a discussion that took place at Medmark's annual broker meeting in Middleburg, Virginia. Medmark empowered me, me, to assemble a panel of VCs and an entrepreneur and executive to discuss some of the bigger issues facing medtech startups, facing larger medtech companies. So we covered a lot of grounds. Uh, this is uh, this is a, a sizable meal of medtech information. If you're hungry, eat the whole thing at once. There's no carbs. It's going to be delicious. If you want to nibble, you can just follow along. I'll include some timestamps in the description, and you can uh, check off inflation, bearable markets, FDA, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, while you're doing Either of those things, make sure you thank Medmark for uh, allowing me to put all of this together. Before we get into the conversation and I introduce our panelists, I do want to remind you that Medmark is one of our uh, great sponsors of Device Talks West, which is happening on October 19th and 20th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. You should go to west.devicetalks.com to check out the agenda and to, of course, register. And when you do, feel free to use this code. It's DT. Weekly 25, DT Weekly 25, and you'll save 25% off the registration fee. So go to west.devicetalks.com or just devicetalks.com. You can find it once you get there as well. So uh, please do join us in Medmark in Santa Clara on October 19th and 20th. Before I introduce our panelists, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Medmark. I spoke with John Agello. He, of course, is Vice President of Business Development and Marketing at Medmark. John, tell us about Medmark. Sure, I'd be happy to. Medmark Insurance Group is a specialty insurance company focused on products, liability, and manufacturer's E&O insurance for medical technology companies. Founded in 1979, we offer insurance policies, claims handling, and risk management services to med device manufacturers and distributors, drug companies, and biotech firms. Our insureds, they range in size from those starting their first human clinical trials to multinational billion-dollar organizations. Our products and services can be accessed through your local insurance broker or directly through medmark.com. We'll hear more from John Agello a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out more about Medmark, go to Medmark. That's M-E-D-M-A-R-C dot com. All right. Now I'd like to start this discussion by introducing our panelists. We have a great panel representing CEOs and investors. Sitting to my immediate left was Martha Shaden, who was most recently CEO of Miak Orthopedic. Previously, she had been with Smith & Nephew and had been president and CEO of Rotation Medical, an orthopedics company that Smith & Nephew would go on to acquire. Let's meet Martha. 
I'm Martha Shaden. Um, unlike my esteemed colleagues here, um, I'm an operator, so I've run small medtech companies um, as well as uh, larger and been part of very large medtech companies. Um, and um, so uh, when we look at, um, well, the other thing I should tell you is I am also on the executive board of Avamed. Um, I was the chair of Excel, which is the division within Avamed that represents small startup companies. Um, and I'm also the chairwoman of the IND committee for Avamed. And I know there was a lot of chatter yesterday about Avamed, so um, we share a lot of common interest um, from that perspective. All right, next was Ryan Drant. Ryan had been with NEA for a long time. Now he's founder and managing partner at Cuesta Capital. Let's listen. My name is Ryan Drant. Um, I uh, uh, run a firm called Cuesta Capital Management, um, which is a healthcare-focused uh, venture capital firm. Um, we invest in medical devices, but also healthcare software uh, and what we call tech-enabled services, so a, a better way to deliver a healthcare service, kind of leveraging technology. Um, I've been in the venture capital business for about 25 years. Um, previously, I was a partner at a firm called NEA, which you'll hear about from, from Ali, um, and actually the three of us worked together for over a decade. Actually, Ryan hired me at NEA, so. Uh, I, did a couple, I did a couple things right, including that. Um, and, uh, but so, you know, been, been fortunate to be in the business for a long time, have worked with, uh, I think, 45 different companies um, over that period of time. Um, and, you know, still do a fair amount of medical device investing and, you know, really uh, enjoy the, the industry. Those are two great panelists. We have two other great panelists to come. Next up is Justin Klein, also formerly of NEA, now a co-founder and managing partner at Vensana. I'm Justin Klein. I, I, uh, I'm a venture capital investor based here in the DC area, uh, focused on medical technology investing, which I learned uh, from Ryan and, and really with Ali uh, over a number of years as a partner at NEA here in DC. And about four years ago, um, co-founded a venture capital firm called Vensana Capital. And our focus is med tech, uh, which we define as uh, anything sort of non-pharma uh, as an innovation that could impact clinical outcomes or, or healthcare costs, um, with a fairly strong emphasis on medical device innovation and the kind of clinical care pathways where a technology is used by a surgeon or a physician you know, in their management of a patient. But we also look at some other areas like diagnostics or life sciences tools and technologies uh, or digital health that are still relatively close and intersecting with those care pathways. So we probably look at things relating to how operating rooms could run more efficiently. We wouldn't necessarily look at the revenue cycle management software that a hospital deploys in the kind of finance side of things. So a little bit of how we think about the universe and, and what we're interested in. And sitting on the opposite end of the stage was Ali Babahani of NEA. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Um, Ali Babahani, I uh, uh, work uh, in the DC office here at, at uh, NEA. Um, we're, we do both tech and healthcare at NEA. I only do the healthcare stuff. And I actually do some device stuff, but I also do biotech investing and we'll invest across all stages. So everything from kind of startup seed series A at a later stage, and we do some public investing as well. 
Um, and actually, Ryan hired me, so I've, I've been here now at NEA for 15 years. Justin and I grew up at the firm together. We started Rotation, and Martha ran that, and I was on her board um, uh, when she was running that company. So a lot, lot of great relationships. And Okay, now you can connect the names and the thoughts with the voices. Let's begin this conversation. Let's let's talk about inflation. I mean, it's it's it's, it's we, we talk about it in a general sense. We talk about it in a political sense. We're all seeing gas prices go up and now go down. Uh, a lot of things are still more expensive than I remember them being. <laughs> uh, but how does that factor into? Well, let's talk about investing in a company first, and we can talk about running, running a company next. Uh, when you're assessing uh, uh, the capital needs of a, of a startup, are you factoring in? And, and Ryan, we'll start with you. Are you factoring in uh, that things might be more expensive than they are right now? Are you building sort of margins into it? How, how do you factor inflation into investment decisions that you're making? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, I, I think, look, it's interesting, even for somebody who's been in the business like me for 25 years, I mean, we've never really seen inflation greater than, you know, low single digits. So I think we're still sort of figuring it out. Um, I do think, uh, as Martha touched on earlier, you know, we are seeing it in like the cost of people. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're trying to think about that as we kind of model out what it's going to, what it's going to cost to maintain a team over, over a period of time. Um, and then I think we're seeing it in, in supply chain too. I mean, I, I think it's hard to parse out um, how much of that is inflation and, and how much are other things. I mean, uh, honestly, I think the bigger thing we've seen in, in medical device supply chain, you know, one is a, a bunch of components have now been offshored. And so, um, the, the logistical part is a, is a big issue. Um, and then the other part is there's been big consolidation amongst, um, medical device parts vendors. It, you know, it's a, it's a big area of interest for private equity. They've consolidated a lot of the, a lot of those suppliers and, and that's had a big impact. So I think it is something to think about and something that we try and factor in. But, but I think honestly, we're, we're still trying to figure out, you know, we're, we're sort of hoping that, you know, it's quote unquote transient and meaning that it's going to be, you know, maybe for the next 12 or 18 months, but not, not beyond that. Um, because I think inflation at eight or 9% longer term, I think that's pretty hard to factor into your models, especially when you're in a long-term business like us where, you know, our, we're generally holding an investment for seven, eight, nine years. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's a long time at that, at that kind of rate. I mean, maybe the other thing to add, I mean, the the inflation kick up recently, right, just has exacerbated, I think, an issue, not maybe not an issue, but just a reality that like the cost of developing a device or a drug are a lot different than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, right? So in some respects, like my biggest worry, especially when you go into a capital constrained environment right now that we're in because, you know, the IPO market, both for biotech and devices are effectively closed 
closed. You've seen some of the later stage investors who are putting in money in crossover rounds. That sort of has shrunk, right? And so the, the biggest issue in a capital constrained environment is can you raise enough capital? And we, we've, yeah, to get a drug or a device to the market just costs a lot more today, even before you factor in like the kick up in inflation, right? Just again, the, the inflation is just exacerbating the issue further, right? Um, has gone up a lot over the last decade. And so, and, and you know, we're funding companies to a given milestone, right? And so if that mile, to get to that milestone costs a lot more, you have to factor it in because you need to get to that clinical data to hopefully raise that next financing. And so if you aren't funding to that milestone or that milestone now that you thought you had funded to is gonna take more capital, that's a huge issue because you then you know it, it affects how you finance a company. And so my biggest worry right now, I think in and it's sort of, you know, it's it's kind of circular and in, in inflation impacts it, but the burn rates of companies, devices, and biotech are just so high. Um, and some of it's because there was more free spending due to capital being so unconstrained for, you know, a period of time. Um, and so then the reality is, okay, if capital is now constrained, you know, you really have to make sure, and, and costs are going up, you really have to make sure that your plan makes sense and that you can get to those milestones, because if you can't, then when you go to raise that next round, it's going to be pretty painful and ugly if possible at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not uncommon to see private companies with four or five million of burn that are preclinical on the biotech side and devices, I think it's a little bit better in that. So you mean, you mean four or five million a month? A month, yeah. right, yeah, which is a lot, right? I mean, if you're a public company, it's one thing because you have a bigger universe of investors to draw from. Private's much smaller. And so I, I think it's a little better in devices. You know, I don't think that you've seen kind of, you know, it's it, they're higher, but maybe not to those, but, but it affects everything because when you're private and then the burn's high, you know, no matter how much capital you have, it's a dwindling asset, right? So at some point, they're going to have to figure it out. And, and, and it's hard, you know, to try and cut the burn. It's so hard, right? Because every time I, you know, like, well, why don't we just cut the burn by half? Well, you know, you go and look at the plan. Okay, you, you stop developing that device or maybe not do that trial. And that gets you maybe a quarter, maybe two if you're lucky. And that's it, right? And so really to make those big changes, you really have to cut into, you know, red meat and, and lay off a big chunk of your, and that's never easy to do. And so that's what, you know, that's, that's what worries me is that the inflation impacts it even more now because the costs that you already felt were high are not going to be higher. Martha, what, I've never really thought about this question before, but what are, looking at a startup, I assume the majority of the cost, the vast majority of the cost is labor. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about, uh, you, you talked a bit about the labor, labor shortages and, and, the, and the raises that are, that are being required now, but, but let's just look sort of the inflation of, of, of costs right now, of items and goods. Uh, how is that, how, how has that, uh, how, how do you look at that as a, as a CEO of a company and, and sort of projecting and, and answering the questions that investors would have uh, as to burn rates and things like that. How are you, how are you assessing that? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, this high inflation um, has impacts in, impact in so many different facets of the business, and labor is a key one. Um, but um, let's see how we can unpack this. So if you're uh, buying, if your product is outsourced and it's being made by a contract manufacturer, which I think everyone understands what they do. Um, their, a lot of their costs are labor related. And so it naturally flows to us. Um, and the price of the product is then impacted. 
Um, if it's a disruptive technology, something that's new, and you have a little bit more um, elasticity in the price, you can pretty much absorb that. However, if you're a large multinational, and these products have been around for years and years, um, the price of those products um, are, are not elastic. And so you have a lot of pressure from your buyers, hospitals, and um, uh, other healthcare providers. And they're under enormous pressure to take costs down. Um, you know, especially during COVID, they were hit pretty hard. So you have this tension in terms of trying to find ways to cost reduce your products and your provider is, um, but keeping your margins high and your provider is um, trying to, um, you know, discount. Medical devices is a really good target. You know, um, when, you, when the um, hospitals look at trying to take costs down, it's the easiest place for them to go. It only represents about 6% of their total costs, but it's the easiest place for them to go. And then I think about labor. So um, labor shortage, and we talked a little bit about that. Especially if you're commercial, the cost of your, your selling organization um, is a very, very significant piece of your burn rate, your monthly burn rate. And we are seeing some crazy things happening out there where our sales reps are being lured away by getting a 30, 40% increase guaranteed um, salaries for year for a year. I mean, really it's, it's crazy stuff because of the shortage. So it's driving up our cost to acquire um, sales reps. So, you know, I, I think about clinical trials. We know that about 70, 80% of clinical trials don't enroll in the time frame that they're supposed to enroll, right? What does that mean? It's costs associated with that. And so we, and again, that goes back to, it's not just, it's not just the patient, it's a labor shortage at the hospital that's impacting that. So um, we're burning, burning cash while that's happening. And when I think about it, you know, as our burn rate goes up, the pool of money that we have dwindles faster and it, it means that we just have to raise more money to keep ourselves afloat, which means we've got to go and talk to folks like this that are not necessarily nice to us all the time. Always nice, Martha, always. <laughs> um, and uh, try to raise money. And there is um, a real shortage of VCs now that will invest in med, med tech. We can get into yeah, that that's later. Point. That's, that's not on our list of things to talk about, but uh, but that's a great point and one we should bring up. Justin, has your when when you're looking at a company, when you used to, when we used to talk about companies you've invested in, we always focused on like this is great technology that's going to do this someday and it's going to change the world and it's all for me it's ten thousand feet if not higher. Has your conversation when you're assessing a new company, how much of how much more of this? How much of this is built into your conversations now versus maybe a couple of years ago? Are you looking at labor? Are you looking? Can we get the right people? Are you looking at? Is this, are these costs too expensive? Are you looking at supply chain stuff? How much of these sort of mundane things, but essential things, factoring into your investment decisions? 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd say more than they used to. I, I tell you too, maybe 10 years ago, we probably wouldn't think about operations or supply chain as a specific work stream in our due diligence on a company. We, we, we'd focus on backing experienced entrepreneurs who we presumed had their arms around those things, they have relationships, they, they know how to execute. And so we would sort of subsume that work under the idea of backing the right entrepreneur. And I think now, um, in a few cases, we've tried to identify specific consultants to help us really look under the covers and make sure we feel good because it has been a dynamic environment. And so even though we, we trust our entrepreneurs, we recognize that they may not be seeing things that we are aware of or are happening in the markets you know, where, where they're going to be pursuing their next company. So it's, it's part of it for sure. I think the other thing that we've spent more time on as well is thinking carefully about the other side of inflation and and how how will markets receive our innovations once commercial? What is the opportunity to take price in a given category and what types of innovations do we want to focus on where we think we can have a better opportunity to take or maintain price in end markets. Like Martha talked about, hospitals are putting increasing amounts of pressure on vendors. You know, so we think about a few things because as you're hearing, one of the biggest drivers of return is the cost and time it takes to get something to market. You know, that's a scalable commercial opportunity. Um, but the back end of that is what, what do you recognize out of the revenue opportunity through price and volume? So we probably are focusing more today on increasingly larger TAMs, right? And end market size that creates a bigger potential revenue opportunity with good execution. That also can imply more risk in what you're taking on. Um, I often felt like uh, probability of success goes down with the bigger the TAM you're, you're reaching for versus something that's very focused and execution-centric, so we have to be sensitive to that. We also think a lot about you know the clinical value proposition or the economic value proposition of the, of the sort of end innovation, so things that are life-saving technologies that, that you can measure a mortality benefit around, you can imagine people are more willing to pay for than something that has more of an incremental sort of quality of life benefit. Still important, but when you think about what somebody's going to be willing to pay for, it's that life-saving solution that, that matters more. In parallel, I think it's important to recognize that our reimbursement environment's changing. You know, we... For 10 years, we talk about you know the emergence of value-based care, right, and how we all have to think about reorienting an acute fee-for-service focused sort of reimbursement environment for care delivery and how products are paid for or valued towards one where value, right, is the driver of payment, and and that's happening. But I'd say it's happening very slowly. And I think we're in a phase where we're trying to figure out how can our companies be successful in a traditional fee-for-service environment setting, some of which really constrains your ability to take price because of how codes are assigned and valued and things like that, and how slowly they evolve, versus value-based care frameworks, which is a meaningful percentage of the payer mix for hospitals and other clinicians today but very unclear as to how value-based care arrangements end up getting developed or implemented specifically around medical devices. So it's almost like our companies now have to do scenario planning for both worlds and sometimes building commercial organizations that go after both types of, of business models, and that adds complexity too. 
We tried to take questions throughout the uh, discussion. In this clip, you're going to hear a question from George Aid. He's Assistant Vice President at Medmark. Let's listen. Uh, this is kind of simple. I, I mean, just a, almost a one-word answer. I'm a little scared when I hear you all talking about the changes that are happening in this in in, in reimbursement and and development and investing and everything else. And maybe six months ago, when I was in San Francisco, it seemed like things were still going and everybody was positive in the future. And and, and so my question. Are you a bull or a bear for the future, for the immediate future and the long-term future? For, for medtech startups yep. specifically? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, I think there's, we, you know, these markets cycle back and forth, right? So I think, you know, a year ago, you, you know, that, that the, the market, people were more optimistic today, you know, but, but things will come back, right? I mean, I don't think innovation's changing. I think the unmet need is still there. And then it's just a matter of, you know, doing what you do, right? Which is we're trying to help mitigate the risk for our companies to be able to get those life-saving or those, you know, big kind of therapies to market. Um, and so, you know, so some of this is just more kind of the headwinds that you see. And then what we do with our management teams is figure out what, what do we need to do to, you know, in response to that, right? Because if you don't respond to that, then and keep going like nothing's happening, then then you wind up running into a brick wall at 80 miles an hour, right? Which you don't want to do. But no, I, I personally, I, I, I don't see that need or the, the actual substance of kind of the industry going away. Um, and we've been all been through these cycles and it's just you know helping our companies manage through them and and then you know there will be a cycle that you know that that where you have the upturn and you know and i would say you know in those upturn cycles maybe things were too unrealistic too right too optimistic and so it's just a matter of i think being even keel and and and, um, and just helping companies manage through it yeah, I, I think each of us is bullish on the opportunity for innovation, right? I think what's interesting is you're, you're getting a bit of a biased subset of the venture universe right here because we all think very similarly. We're also very even keeled. Um, and look, in, in, I think in medical devices and medical technology, we've developed an ethos that we get rewarded, our companies get rewarded when we actually prove that our innovations create value. There's a whole nother strategy and venture. It's, it's less applied in this category, but you can evangelize technologies and kind of sell the dream, and you can make a lot of money being full of it, okay? <laughs> and you may have seen some of that in San Francisco, right, versus uh, <laughs> this, this group. So, you know, and look, that's a, that, that is a proven path to being a successful investor, particularly at early stages and where things are unclear. Um, in the short run. I mean, in, I think in, in the, the long run, run it, right. it's hard to sustain that, right? Yeah. And at some point, you know, you hitting the wall. Yeah, I mean, finding, finding the greater fool is a strategy, right? My job is to prove that I'm not the fool. <laughs> and, and that's hard enough. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I agree with what these guys said. I'm a bull. I mean, I think if you look at what we do, particularly the medical device um, versus other areas of venture investing, there's a lot of middlemen in the business, right? Between trying to sell a product like uh, the rotator cuff repair product that, that Martha developed and, and was very successful with, um, into that sort of the end, you know, consumer. And so that, you know, that means it's a fairly intricate business model that we have to help these companies build. Um, and 
you know, going out and just like flouting local laws to start Uber is a lot easier, right? I mean, and, and, and obviously, you know, it's just a consumer paying for a service. So I think by definition, what we do is a little more complicated. You know, that said, um, I think consumers are, are ever more interested in their own health, how medical technology is going to impact them. I think a big trend that we see that I think maybe we'll be talking more about is um, the sort of digitization or, or connected devices, which I think is a massive trend over the next, it already is and it's gonna be even bigger. And so I think that's gonna make devices that much closer to people and so, um, you know, hopefully we'll shrink that divide between the, the device developer and the consumer. Yeah, I, I, just to um, wrap this up, um, I agree with everything that's been said. I, I, there is a reason why the United States is the leader in medtech innovation. It's because we're really good, we make a bunch of mistakes, but we're really good at assessing the risks and understanding and anticipating what's gonna happen. And so that's what we're talking about is putting the right controls in place, the right um, assessments in place um, to understand where those potholes are gonna be so that we can anticipate them and deal with them effectively. Um, and so I, I am more bullish than I've ever been, especially with the relationship that has been built with the FDA, not so much with CMS, but with FDA, and um, how we are working together to get these life-saving technologies into the market. Well, let's talk about the FDA and, re and regulatory. I've got a ton of questions, but nice segue there. Uh, it sounds as if that that's a that that risk is is less than it that used to be, or there are new risks. It sounds like the whole enrolling people for clinical trials. I hadn't really thought about that. That's obvious for risk, but overall, regulatory getting a regulatory approval, Martha, uh, has that become a less risky endeavor, equally risky endeavor, or more risky endeavor than it had been maybe ten years ago? Yeah. Um, so I think this is what's happened with the FDA under the leadership of um, uh, Sharon, Jeff Sharon. Um, it has become much more transparent and much more predictable. Uh, there's a new program uh, that actually Avamed is helping to fund. It's called the TAP program. Every, anybody familiar with that? It's, okay, it's a total product life cycle um, advisory program. And what it is is it's the FDA is going to hire and support companies who are trying to get their products um, through the process by providing expert help in how to write their applications, um, how to look at the risks of their products and account for them in clinical trials. I wholeheartedly support TAP. Justin, you're pretty familiar with it as well. I'd and um, I think it's, it's a fantastic program. We, um, in my last company, MIAC Orthopedics, um, we got the first de novo approval, and I don't know how familiar you are with regulatory path, but de novo is a uh, product that has no predicate, uh, but isn't as risky as, say, a heart valve, right? So somebody's not gonna die if their ACL isn't repaired correctly. 
But with the de novo, um, we got it from start to finish within six months. You know why? Because of the way the FDA is now working with companies, they're much more um, advisory, um, and um, rather than being ad adversarial, it is a collaboration that is um, helping to bring these products, and they're incentivized. The FDA wants these products to come to market, so long as they're safe and do what they're supposed to do. Um, so I think that um, I see huge changes with the FDA. I think our challenge, and Avamed will is, you know, this is a, a, one of our pillars is to work with CMS to get that same predictability and, tr and transparency that we need. And if you're not familiar, CMS um, is responsible for um, the coding. Um, and the um, um, the payment of the devices. So that's where we need help. One more comment I will say. Um, when I was at Rotation Medical, um, the first thing I need to do when I came on as a CEO, Ali said to me, you need to go out and raise some more money. Um, within a week of coming on you know, as the CEO, I'd never raised money before, and I thought, well, how hard could this be, right? Um, what I, it, the problem was I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, after 65 no's from VCs, I realized that maybe it was a little harder than I really thought. Do you know what the number one reason was? Reimbursement. Reimbursement risk. So I'll just hand it over to get the VC perspective yeah. on that. Sure. So we'll stock regulatory and we can build in some reimbursement into that as well, Justin. Well, I, I'd, I'd concur with Martha's comments around um, the improvement we've seen with FDA over the last, I don't know, 14 years, which is something we have actually all lived through. Um, there were periods of time where FDA was considerably more conservative around what they were willing to uh, assume as a risk associated with developing medical devices. So, for example, uh, in a period of time, you know, they went from probably taking three to six months to review a proposed clinical trial protocol and give you the green light to start enrolling patients in a, in a trial in the U.S. for a novel medical device to two years of back and forth and wanting to see front-loaded preclinical studies, you know, exhaustive biocompatibility testing, you know, and frankly, in a lot of cases, just unreasonable expectations around how to retire risk from every facet of this product before you could test it in a human. You know, that led to all kinds of perverse incentives around um, where we studied products, you know, products became available much earlier in Europe than US. These are life-saving products. And um, frankly, a lot of investors just abandoned medical device investing, recognizing that if you couldn't even get to the starting line, you know, uh, without investing a round of financing in, in your dialogue with FDA, it's totally unreasonable. I, I would say um, one of the probably more important drivers of that has been a willingness for FDA to be collaborative and, and uh, you know, listen more and take input and be open to it um, while still communicating. You know, they have to adhere to their objectives around preserving the integrity of their review process, which they have. 
We've also done a really nice job, I think, in making the most out of this program called Medufa, where industry will pay user fees that are like tolls on the toll road so that FDA can staff appropriately, can invest in technology, you know, and can frankly even try pilot programs like TAP and other things so that we have better, more efficient pathways to accommodate where innovation's happening all over the place. I think the challenge on the reimbursement side is in part CMS. Um, it's in part other payers too. Private payers are getting increasingly scrutinous of what they pay for, and you know their business model, frankly, is to delay payment as long as possible, no matter what. Um, and at the same time, while CMS is probably the largest and most important single payer that we have to kind of interact with. And it, it is in part both a, a national or federal organization and then local sort of coverage delivery that creates sort of some disjointed interactions when you think about what does it really mean to get paid by Medicare. Um, Medicare and CMS in particular, like their coverage group, lack the resources they need to be proactive in working with innovation um, to really guide you know, expectations around trial designs and efficiencies that could be gained in the way that FDA has been able to do so. They don't have a similar kind of user fee model, and there are some reasons for which they, they don't or can't that relate back to their sort of legislative history as an organization. But it, I think it's a need for us to, to really continue to invest and work with them to figure out how to better resource them so that they can be more proactive. So I, I would agree it, it continues to be the biggest uh, risk factor when we think about at what stage we can invest in a new technology on its path to the U.S. market. We, we have to have reasonable timelines. You know, our, our funds are raised with 10-year lives to them. So ideally, we're making new investments or new commitments to, to companies that come into the portfolio in years one through three. We fund those companies through years three, four, five, six, seven. And then ideally in years seven through 10, we're exiting and harvesting those companies as either IPOs or M&A candidates. And if it takes 15 to 20 years to get from a new idea to a, an idea in the market that's got coding coverage payment and FDA approval, like it doesn't make sense to invest in the first three rounds of a new medical device company, no, no matter sort of how interesting it is or how, how de-risked it is and all those steps to get there. You just can't make the time factor work. So it's actually one of the areas I probably spend the most time on from a policy standpoint, really trying to figure out how do we, how do we compress these timelines and bring some rationality to the process. Thanks. And Ali, uh, folks here are doing business with Pharma as well. I don't know if you could share any, any sense of a, a, a change of assessment of how the FDA is operating on the pharma side of things? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I've always thought that the pharma side was always a lot easier, you know, that, to, to work with. They were, I feel like, more transparent for a long time. You know, they came up with accelerated approval paths for life-threatening diseases. And so it always sort of felt, it was always weird to me doing both, um, biotech and devices that devices for a long time was very different right um, and it was just harder to get good feedback that was transparent you know and so I, I think you know that's definitely I agree with um, Justin Martha that's definitely changed and you've seen sort of the device division become more like the pharma division from that perspective and you know because you're seeing even you know like accelerated approval pathways like the one that CBRX and others have, have used to get you know life-threatening um, devices for life-threatening diseases to 
market faster, even you know before you have like true mortality morbidity data. So, so I think that's all a step in the right direction. I, I think that in Europe, it's sort of devices has kind of gone back the other way. So the reason why many of our companies would go and do initial trials in Europe was because, you know, that the the, um, the the amount of data that you needed to start those trials was less, um, and so that's why a lot of our companies would go. I, I think Europe, you know, on the device side is sort of become more like the U.S. and so that sort of advantage is kind of gone in most of our you know companies now, um, partly because you know the the, the um, regulators on the FDA have gotten easier to work with. We'll just now come to the to the U.S. to start some of those trials, which I think is great because you know like that the biggest knock was we were starting these companies, but you know like the the devices were never going to get to the U.S. for a long time, but yet you know people in the in Europe were getting access to them a lot quicker. Um, and then on the reimbursement side, I mean there's also this dichotomy. I mean, any drug that gets approved at least will get tier three status out of the gate. You don't have that for devices, which I think is nuts, right? So wh why should there be this dichotomy that like any drug that gets approval at least have some, you know, reimbursement um, may not be great, but something, right? Versus like in devices, you don't have that, right? And I, I think that is crazy. And and so, you know, it is it is still the thing that you always hear most investors are focused on. You know, if you're able to use an existing code, then it's sort of almost like a check the box. If you're in the, I got to go build a new code, everyone, you know, will try to hire consultants to tell you like, but but those consultants can't tell you anything other than like, this is what you need to do. Go do two randomized studies. You know, it'll take this long. And, but, but that's a pretty generic answer. And so I think that's why people struggle with, um, you know, trying to assess the reimbursement risk for a device where there isn't an existing code that you can use. Unfortunately, a lot of those are the biggest, you know, but like the big paradigm shifting technologies where you do want to get them covered, but the pathway is less, you know, isn't there because they're kind of new and, and, and innovative devices. And so hopefully that gets changed over time. Uh, you know, I, I, it's to me crazy that there is still this dichotomy between drugs and devices and I don't understand why they shouldn't, you know, be the same, but, but that's kind of the system that we have right now. We'll take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Medmark Insurance. Once again, I'm speaking with John Agello, Vice President of Business Development and Marketing at Medmark. John, how exactly does Medmark work with medical device companies? Tom, we work with them in a number of different ways. First and foremost, offering insurance policies for products liability so you can get your medtech products to market and conduct your clinical trials. We also offer manufacturers' E&O policies to satisfy your contractual requirements with your customers. Secondly, we work with your insurance broker and risk management and insurance team to craft appropriate policy terms and benchmark industry data for decisions regarding insurance limits to carry. We also provide risk management services, such as contract reviews that you use with your customers and suppliers, on-site inspections of factory floors and warehouses, we offer training of your staff on products liability risks and how to minimize them, and regulatory compliance review and training. We offer a myriad of resources to med tech firms designed to help you identify and prevent products liability exposures via our publications, webinars, and our new video series on medmark.com. And finally, while no one expects a products liability claim, they can and do happen. Our claims team and dedicated panel of defense attorneys are here to represent you and defend you and your product. Thanks, John Ojello. We'll hear from Medmark one more time a little later in this episode. 
Now, let's get back to our conversation. In this next segment, we explore the opportunities in Connected Health. Brian, uh, you mentioned Connected Health, some of the work you're doing. I'm wondering, where are you seeing opportunities? What kind of companies are you investing in? And, and regarding MedTech, how essential is it for medical device companies, new companies, startups to have sort of an eye toward connectivity of some kind? Is it going to be something that's incorporated in all MedTech going forward? Does everyone, you know, 15 years ago, people had to have a, a China strategy. Do they need, now need to have a connectivity strategy in, in their PowerPoint presentation to, to appease event investors? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that it'll be every device, but I think it'll be the majority. And um, and yeah, I, I do think we, you know, we're interested in in understanding from a new company how how that's going to play into their uh, into their future plans. Um, and, and and you know, I think from our perspective, it both has the opportunity to make the device more efficacious for the patient, but also to frankly make it a better business for the for the vendor. Um, you know, historically the device business, and, and there's obviously very various subsectors, but you know, it's a device, it's a business of sort of selling something one time and then, you know, moving on and kind of finding the next doctor, or the next patient, but there's no kind of ongoing relationship, no kind of subscription or annuity element to it. Um, and, and I do think that there's going to be more and more of that opportunity. Um, so I think it'll it'll fundamentally make for a better business. But I think it also has the opportunity to really improve these devices for for patients. You know, whether it be um, you know like a, a Dexcom or some other um, continuous glucose management. You know, which is kind of real-time recording these glucose readings and, and allowing a, a physician to um, better manage care. Um, you know, at, at Questa, we've invested in a, a digital stethoscope company, which we think is pretty transformative. Um, you know, this also uh, kind of leads into the discussion about AI and machine learning. So this company has several approvals for using AI. So, you know, historically, if, if you saw a physician and they're listening to your heart sounds, you have to have a pretty trained physician to really differentiate the sounds they're hearing and to try and diagnose something like um, valve dysfunction or heart disease or heart murmur or, or whatever. And those, to train people to do that is very expensive. There, there are not, you know, they're not everybody who you're gonna see in the, uh, in the healthcare delivery world. Um, but we can train an algorithm to do it quite well. And so what we got really excited about was the opportunity to have somebody who's kind of a frontline healthcare worker, you know, a technician, a nurse, nurse practitioner, be able to use this technology, but be the equivalent of somebody who's had, you know, five or 10 years of training because we're, we're leveraging an AI algorithm which can help do that. So we think those are the kinds of opportunities that connected devices will open up. And it's I think it's good for all of us. I mean, it, it allows us to, you know, all of us, I think, believe in like, how can we take cost out of the system, provide better better care at lower cost? And I think that that connected devices really um, provide an opportunity to do that on a on a pretty big scale. That's interesting. I guess I, I thought that AI maybe introduced an uncertainty that elevated the risk of an investment and maybe made it a device. Just it was it was something that maybe we didn't quite understand that would make it the outcome less certain. But it sounds as if it's actually the opposite, that it's giving you assurances and giving it, it, it's 
You know my question answered. Yeah, no, I, look, I think it could be, I think it's both. I think it has a huge opportunity, but I think for us it's also, like when you meet with a company and they're talking about AI, I mean, first of all, it's like massively overgeneralized, and, and second, it's sort of a black box, like trying to find an expert for us to, to use who's gonna really tell us what they really have is, is I think, the challenge. Justin, you, I know you've got an investment in the space, and I'm sure you hear a lot of AI pitches. How, how do you view that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think the application of data science to healthcare does create huge opportunities for us to do a lot better, including doing things that humans don't do well. Um, you know, on the risk side, I, I think a couple of things we focus on are one let's say it's some machine learning derived algorithm that gives you an answer that's clinically actionable. Um, we, we struggle to kind of wrap our heads around like to the black box comment, okay, so how many other ways in which are there that someone could develop their own algorithm to get you to the same sort of clinical action or you know, actionable information? that may sidestep your IP or all the things that you invested time in to sort of build your algorithm and validate it clinically, you know. So with a medical device, you know, you can develop patents around the design of the device or even methods for use. And with some of these very algorithm-centric innovations that could be clinically impactful, you also have to make sure you're not just kind of building the bridge for yourself to build a business, but everybody else can just like march right over it. and. Um, and therefore sort of undermine your competitive position as a first mover. I think the other thing we think about um, is that under a typical fee-for-service reimbursement environment, payment has been uh, ascribed according to something called relative value units, physician time, basically, in performing a procedure or, or you know, working up a patient. And these algorithms that are, you know, being layered into uh, diagnostics, for example, or even certain therapeutics, um, they run in, you know, microseconds. And sometimes they even make it faster for the clinician to do their job. Um, it is a problem if the value that that technology is bringing to the clinical picture isn't rewarded. If, if anything, it could create a situation where the next time they look at those codes and they ascribe value to those codes for the physician doing this work, um, they're going to get paid less. So it creates this crazy paradox, according to our, our reimbursement system. And frankly, that leads a lot of us to think about, okay, well, that's not a great sort of setup commercially, so what about under these value-based care arrangements? You know, here, this is where incentives should be aligned to bring efficiency and quality to the system, and, and if we can do a better job, faster, easier, we should get paid more for it and be able to bear risk around that and contract for it. And that's true, and I think we're seeing good examples of that happening, but I also believe th that's a very unpredictable commercial path, right? Value-based care arrangements are typically one-off contractual arrangements that take many, many months and quarters to negotiate between one party at a time in a consensus-building process, you know, with an insurance company or a payer or provider system that is very idiosyncratic. And so there's definitely opportunity there, but I think being able to predict how you go out and build a business that's predictable and systematic and kind of scale 
introduces new risks. So all, these are all things that, again, we're excited about, right? We see those opportunities, but we, we also appreciate they're very complicated, and you have to be really thoughtful about evaluating all the facets, whether it's upside or downside or, or uncertainty, um, when thinking about how to invest in something like that. As I said earlier, we tried to open up the questions or open up the discussion to questions from the audience. We got a great question from an audience member. He directed it at the two doctors on the panel. That would be Dr. Justin Klein of Vansana and Dr. Ali Babahani of NEA. Both have their MDs. Let's listen. I have a question for the doctors, the physicians on the, on the stage. Um, one of the things that concerns me as a defense lawyer is the progression of connectivity and remote um, healthcare services that take the doctor out of the diagnosis. As physicians, is that a concern for you when we talk about remote diagnostics? How does that how do you react to that? Because I worry about people not seeing their doctors, not seeing their nurses, not seeing the healthcare provider in person. I mean, I, I, my personal biases, you know, not you know, anything that takes the doctor out of the equation. I, if it was me, like I wouldn't trust it, right? So, um, I, you know, there is an art to medicine that that I just don't think you can sort of digitize. Uh, I do worry that it is a black box in a lot of cases. So, like, let's say there's an algorithm that spits out at something, and and you know, as a you know, as a physician, I, I don't think I could rely unless there had been it been proven like in a randomized trial. Um, I would be very wary of relying on that information to make a clinical treatment decision or, or diagnosis. Um, now, can it help? Sure, right? But but you're helping the doctor, so the doctor still has to be part of that equation, right? Um, so I don't know. I, I personally find it hard to be in a world where the doctor is not in that equation because, I mean, so much of medicine is, there, there's just so many unknowns. And while some of these algorithms, I think, can help make decisions or help see things, you know, the, the, the easy ones are, you know, because um, doctors are, are are not foolproof either, right? So the best ones, and this is where AI first started, right? Looking at images and, and detecting things that maybe a human eye couldn't pick up, but but the computer can. Those are easy, right? Because you can see whether you know that that's the case or not, right? I think the harder ones are, you know, you get an answer, but you have no idea if, is that answer is it garbage in or garbage out, or if it's a it's a really good answer. And and I think um, and and that, that that's where I think I struggle with it, and that's where I just I have a hard time seeing doctors not being part of the equation, because even if they get the answer, they have to interpret it based on sort of the clinical history uh, of the patient and, the, the, and how they present. Um, and so, I don't know, I, just my bias, but I, I just think that would be a, a hard to imagine that happens. I, I agree with Ali. I mean, I think um, I'd note too. You know, the American Medical Association is a pretty effective guild at protecting its members, and so, you know, that impacts all kinds of things, including like coding and how things are paid for, and you know, what types of providers get to manage what types of uh, procedures in different settings. Um, I think that I, I, I again, maybe it's my clinical background, but I really. 
have a high bar on investing in, say, digital technologies or looking at things that um, really only measure and relate to endpoints that I believe are clinically validated for managing a disease or a process. And to Ali's point, I believe digital technologies should be validated with clinical evidence like randomized controlled trials in the same way that a traditional tangible medical device should, if they're really going to be adopted. And I think, I think we've seen a lot of junk get funded because it's relatively easy to build a device that tracks you know, heartbeats and steps and your respiratory rate. That doesn't mean it's actually going to be clinically useful, right? Or potentially even do harm, right, if it's misleading. Um, we've learned some lessons where even actually really good companies have tried to, to develop wearable sensors for things like heart failure patients. And early on, what ended up happening is, is they recognized they had a, re a certain lack of sensitivity or specificity to the things that mattered. And the alarm's going off all the time, and the patient's in the hospital even more. They didn't have to be. But the alarm went off, so what do I do? <laughs> you know, that's not helpful. We learn from those things. We study them, and we figure out how to develop better algorithms for it. But I do worry about this kind of background effect that a lot of, let's call it non-traditional healthcare investors investing in these categories and funding things that look like they should make sense and, you know, they don't understand what sensitivity or specificity is as a, as a diagnostic measure of quality. And they get funded and they get news articles written and then, you know, they either fail as businesses or they disappoint clinically or, you know, that, that frankly detracts from some of the work that, you know, the really high quality experienced entrepreneurs and clinicians are trying to do to validate these new things. And we just have to be sensitive to that, you know, thoughtful about it. But to me, it creates a, a relatively narrow field of things where I'm actually going to invest time and, and pursue. But I think, I think we'll get there. And I'd like to bring in for the last time, John Agello of Medmark. John, it's been a bumpy couple of years for everybody, including medical device companies. What uh, lessons have we learned? Well, we've never been prouder with being part of the medtech community. Just the resilience and the flexibility that our insureds and our clients and our vendors uh, have had both during and after the depth of the pandemic have just been amazing. Many of our insureds have come roaring back with increased revenues, new M&A activity, new clinical trial, and expansions into new areas of med tech. And these insurance buyers are asking us and their brokers to find higher limits of insurance and to review their current programs to make sure that they're still applicable. Inflation, both the social and financial types are impacting our clients. And we're seeing that in the conversations that we're having day to day. If you're currently insured with Medmark, we thank you. If you're interested in learning more about us or getting a quote, please discuss it with your insurance broker. We work with agents all across the country and we're eager to engage with them. Finally, see our website for risk management tools and publications. Connect with us on social media so you can gain the benefits of our periodic emails, videos, webinars, and the like. Well, thank you, John Agello, for the thoughts. And thanks to Bedmark for sponsoring this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast and for having us down to your broker meeting. If you want more information about Medmark, go to medmark.com. That's M-E-D. M-A-R-C dot com. Now we're moving to the home stretch of our discussion. I'm following up on the gentleman's question about the need for doctors to be part of the process. 
Well, I understood his meaning. I, I do recognize, and I think we all recognize that we're we're headed to a sort of cliff where it comes to healthcare workers, both doctors and nurses. We're we're running out of them. We're not replacing them. So I asked Ryan if he could speak to how Connected Health products uh, can help fill that gap, what opportunity there is. Let's listen. Yeah, look, I, I think, I, I, by the way, I agree with, with what these guys said. I mean, twofold. I mean, first, I, I think just making them more efficient, right? I mean, I think that's the, the kind of low-hanging fruit is if we can make, you know, a physician encounter with a patient last 10 minutes instead of 30 because they're leveraging technology to to make them more efficient, I think that's, you know, that's a win for everybody. But I think also if if we can provide support and tools for for less skilled healthcare providers, you know, to, to sort of what they call practice at the top of their license to sort of do more because they're leveraging um, some of these technologies and devices. You know, I think that also kind of grows our, our delivery capacity. And so I think, you know, I think those are both critically important because, um, you know, training a bunch of new doctors is hard. Um, you know, we obviously have a, a fairly limited infrastructure for doing that. And I think, you know, there are a few new medical schools opening, you know, over the years, but not many. And, the, you know, we're, we're not really growing our, our ability to, to train new doctors. So I think that the other things I talked about are, are pretty much what we've got to focus on in order to, to increase supply. And Martha, how do you view it? I know you actually, you're, you're helping to contribute to a new doctor to society. So thank you. You're, you're one of your children is in medical school. So thanks for doing, thanks for their doing that. But how do you view the, the, the shortage that we're facing? Uh, how does that change the opportunity for healthcare investors and healthcare startup executives and entrepreneurs? Yeah. Um, so I'll speak to um, a couple of points about this. Um, Ryan made a really good point. There are a few new medical schools um, but not enough. And um, for every class um, of 200 that get admitted into medical school, there's about 10,000 applicants. Um, and many that don't get in are equally as qualified as some of the others. Um, so it's a real problem. And then these kids are coming out with enormous loans. I don't, I don't know what your loans were or what medical school costs for you guys. 350000 that was 15 years ago, so. Okay. <laughs> so um, it's... It's considerably more, I, I know personally. Um, and um, they will for, he will forever be on our payroll. But, um, you know, there's got to be something to disrupt this, um, to make it affordable, because these kids are coming out with enormous loans. And then they're in, um, you know, residency. They want to be a surgeon for five years, and they're getting paid fifty, sixty thousand dollars as you guys know, um, they can barely live on that if they're in a, you know, an expensive city. Um, but it's not just that. It's not just the doctors. It's the pool of candidates 
um, that is um, relatively the same for um, the medical device industry. And what's happening is we're not growing that pool. These kids aren't really recognizing the value of the medical device industry, and they're going into more sexy um, areas like you know aerospace or high tech, gaming, um, you know you, you name it. Things that um, that resonate with them. So one of the things that Avamed is looking at is how do we grow that pool, but not how do we grow it. How do we grow a more diverse pool of candidates? Why? Why is diversity important? It's not just the color of our skin or our religious, you know, um, leaning. It's about the way we think. And um, having a more diverse pool of candidates um, is better for innovation. It's better for employee engagement. It's better for employee retention. And it's better for the bottom line of your company. Um, somebody mentioned pulse oximeters yesterday. That was a problem, right? Why? Because it doesn't work on people of color as sensitively as it would um, a white person. If you have a diverse, more diverse organization, especially in your engineering group, you're going to be thinking about that. Um, and so that is a huge challenge that we're um, you know, grappling with right now. And there'll be more to come. This is a big topic for us at Avamed. That's a great point. And I've, my son is a future engineer, and I've tried to steer him toward Biomed, but he wants aerospace. So <laughs> got to let the kid live his dreams. But You just proved my point. I know. I think he's rebelling against me already. It's just terrible. <laughs> So we've been talking, we, I have lots more questions. We've been talking for about an hour and 10 minutes. I know people have flights. Um, I can ask one, I can take another question from the audience or just ask one more quick, quick question of the panel, but I don't want to hold the program. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, I just want to quickly talk about, um, the, it came up earlier, just the, the amount of folks out there who are investing in, in starting medtech companies. We talked about the engineers, was a great point, but investors, Ryan, coincidentally, I started covering medtech 25 years ago, and I think I had a call sheet, Word document, with probably over 100 names, and I would do, 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 call them, like, hey, any deals? This was all before the internet and press releases and such, and you were probably kind enough to return my phone calls, and that's how we came to know each other. Uh, I don't know if that list would be as long as it is today. It would uh, be different. What's that? It would probably look different. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of new different. names. So let's, let's start with you, Ali. What is the what is the roster of medtech venture capitalists out there who are investing in? Let's start with let's look at early stage. I mean, we can talk more broadly, but I'd love to within our answers understand whether enough good companies are getting funded. So, Ali, just quickly, what's your take on on the uh, population of venture capital investors? Yeah, investors I mean, like I, I think a lot of it's focused on the later stage. Gen for the reasons that Ryan and Justin articulated, um, but I think there is there there has been dearth of um, you know of like money towards you know on the earlier state side. Now that doesn't mean that there haven't been Series A companies Series A's done and companies started, um, but I, I do think that you know about four or five years ago because it was just so hard to raise capital. I mean Martha's experience was not uncommon. You know. Uh, you know, we, we were doing incubators at NEA where we were essentially starting companies from a blank sheet of paper. 
I mean, I remember between like rotation, cardionomic, ClearVista, you know, we went, you know, when we were spinning them out, we went and we talked to like 150, 200 investors and no one was investing at that point. And, and so we wound up, um, you know, essentially shouldering a lot of that and investing a lot of that to get it further so that, you know, there would be more interest. Cause there's always been interest on the later stage end, I feel like. Um, but, um, and, I, and I do think that, you know, so there were companies started in the last four or five years, but I think those companies are different, right? They look different. And, you know, it, and what do I mean by that? Well, you know, because there was less capital on that end, um, the companies that were started were maybe, you know, more incremental than sort of true groundbreaking, right? And why is that? Well, they required less capital. They didn't have to go through the PMA process. They could go through the 510K process, which is easier, right? Less costly. Um, and so, you know, I, that, I feel like that's kind of the companies that we're seeing now that were, you know, started three, four years ago. That's the kind of companies. Now, interestingly, I do think things started to change about a year and a half, two years ago, because finally, like the device IPO market started to come back, right? Even though biotech was going on for almost a decade, the device, you know, like the, you look at the numbers, like there were maybe less than 10, you know, in that call it 2012 to 2000, you know, 18, 19 uh, IPOs and devices, right? There were like 90 a year, you know, for or, or 50 to 60 to 90 a year for for biotech, just on a on a uh, on so different scale, right? But um, and then I think you started to see an uptick, and finally, in it was 2021 where I think there were 30 medtech IPOs. Um, so that that was huge, right? And I think what happened was that started to get, you know, many of the investors that got out of doing devices, um, you know, maybe started to look at it again as being an attractive area. I think you have a lot of new players. So like if you look at your sheet from 15, you know, 15, 20 years ago versus a sheet, like it'll, you know, there'll be some players that are similar, but you're going to see a lot of new names, right? Um, and I think SVB does a good job of, you know, they have this chart and you know, like you look at some of the, for, for the device ones, like who's investing? You're like, I've, I've never even heard of this firm, right? And, and yet they've done a lot of investments. And so I think that, that that's changed. You, you do have new investors coming in the space. So I think that's great. There's more capital. That, that's coming in the last couple of years. And my bet is that, you know, the kinds of stuff that I like tend to not be incremental, right? They tend to be the more riskier, groundbreaking, you know, where you're changing standard of care. And that's that's usually going down a you know, much harder regulatory path that's usually going to be more costly. Um, and I think you're going to probably, in, in the next couple of years, I'll probably be seeing more of those companies than I have. Because um, it's felt like for the last three or four years, like, it's just, you know, it's been hard to say, like, okay, this is something that I see that I'm like, all right, I think we're going to do this it, because they've been more sort of incremental. Um, and again, not that that's a bad thing, but to me, you know, um, I, I think they're, um, it, you know, I, I think we'll see more of these more innovative, groundbreaking device companies. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that's just a, a function of more investors coming into the market recently. Justin, how are you uh, viewing your, your world? Yeah, I, I think um, I think our ecosystem is healthier than it has been um, for the last several years, which is great. Um, sort of the, the dollars being committed and the number of deals um, in medtech have been relatively stable, if not grown incrementally over time. Um, even at, at the earlier stages, it's gotten better. We've seen a lot more kind of Series A's. They, they often have more of a digital feel when you just kind of break apart the numbers. Um, 
the the counterpoint to that is that there are very few experienced med tech investors left that are willing to lead rounds of financing. So you can often syndicate a deal and get a lot of interest to fill out a round, but getting a bona fide lead to put in a term sheet and price something and and really undertake the company building is, is very hard to find. They're, they're, I can probably count them on my, my six toes. Um, just not many. I think that's in contrast to to other subsectors in venture and healthcare where the growth has been extraordinary, right? I mean, you know, the 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 med tech med device kind of market has been nice, but the other markets have gone like this, right? Biopharma dollars, digital health dollars, certainly software and other categories. I mean, you look at the the number of dollars raised by venture capital firms in 2021 was like you know, 5x what it was, you know, three years before. So there's just a ton of capital in these other markets, and that will create more opportunities for companies and entrepreneurs in those other markets. That's good. Probably going to impair investment returns as well for things that kind of come out of that vintage because you've got people paying pretty extraordinary prices just to do deals. So again, I, I like the health of our ecosystem. I'd love to see more leads. Um, Fundamentally, I think we've got to address things on the back end to really drive you know, competitive returns when it comes to IRRs and multiples on capital that makes sense vis-a-vis -vis the other types of venture investment that we're really competing against when it comes to raising dollars from limited partners and mm -hmm. making our case that you know, we should raise a $300 million fund and we can deploy that and generate consistent you know, top quartile returns. So. I mean, to that point, it's still crazy to me today that you can take a, I mean, today being like last year, you could take a preclinical company in the biotech sector public and have it be, you know, a billion dollar company. Yet, you know, in devices, it still was like, got to get to like 20 million in revenue, right? right. So not, not just approval, right? Not just a little bit of revenue. You got to get to like a meaningful revenue scale. And I, I just think that dichotomy to me is never, as someone who does both, never made sense. But it's been it's been like that for a while. That's reverted to the mean now, right? What, well, I yeah, now what, it's back. What are there, 300 biotech companies trading at less than cash now? Or there's some crazy stat like that. But but still, I, so I agree with but that. They do, but they do have the cash. But they have the cash. They're public, right? I mean, so like I I, I would have taken, you know, like I, I would take that for a device company if you can raise the cash. And yes, you know, like things are going to trade badly in a in a down market, right? No doubt, right? Um, but if you really believe in the technology and the device or the drug and you get to that, you know, have enough capital to get to that clinical data point, I, I think that all corrects itself over time. But it's fair. So I think one, you know, one fascinating thing about our business is we're essentially doing project finance, right? We're, we're embarking on a project to try and develop something which ultimately is going to generate cash flow and, and, you know, create value. But, you know, the project plan is highly variable. We've talked about things, you know, delays and, and the FDA may require more data. And, you know, there's all these things that can happen. But imagine that you were like a condo developer and you were going to go out and start developing a condo. Well, you know, you're going to have all your financing in place before you do that, right? You're going to have your equity investors, you're going to have your lenders. And so you know where all the money is coming from in order to do that. When you're an early stage venture capital investor in medical devices or biopharma, you have no idea how much it's going to take. I mean, you think you do, but you don't. And you don't have it all identified. So when we make an early stage investment, the idea is that we're going to be able to find somebody else who like believes in the vision and will put more money in to help us achieve that. And so that's it, it, the business is highly sensitive to 
how much money is in the in the market and how how susceptible they are to our pitch, right? So as Ali said, the IPO market was great for biotech for four or five years, and so that market really flourished. But you know now it's turned the other way, and so that's the that's the big risk that we're always thinking about, and and is are we going to be able to find somebody else you know to to help fund this to get it to a point where it's profitable um so it, you know it's a it's a fascinating element of of what we do great point martha final yeah, word yeah you. i mean this is so interesting because from the perspective of a ceo um you know i've learned this over the years that um not all investors are created equal and one of the things that's really important for me to understand as a CEO is, where are they in their fund? Um, how many investments have they made? How successful have they been? How much money do they have to, left to make investments? And do they have reserves? So that if things do take longer than expected, and you know, usually they do, do they have money to come back in and help the company, or are they going to be looking for a quick out uh, because of where they are in their, you know, the life cycle of that fund, or because of the funds that they have left? One other point that I would make is. Um, that um, I would love to know where those early A investors are. Because from our perspective as startup CEOs, they're few and far between. One of the things we've had to do is go look at alternative type investors. What do I mean by that? Um, it's you know the angel investors. It's the family offices. There's hundreds of family offices in the United States. The problem is we don't know where they are. They're very opaque. They don't want to be fun. And one family office, um, it, all family offices are not the same. Um, some of them are in it for you know um, a, pers a very personal reason, and they only invest in cardiology. Others are um, a little bit broader in their investments. Some don't do any early stage. Some do early stage. Um, and typically, the uh, amount of the purse is much smaller smaller than it might be from, from um, these guys. So, but um, as a CEO, we're looking at every single option, including strategic, strategic companies to come in early to um, fund the company. So the dearth of early VC um, investors has um, required us to go and scratch other areas to try to, to get the money. But there is still this valley of death where you, know, you can get NIH grants to get you started. Um, but getting into those clinical uh, studies and the cost associated with them really requires much bigger investment. Perfect. It's 11 o'clock. That's the end of our conversation. I'd like to thank our panelists for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much for having us. And uh, Medmark, thanks for supporting Device Talks. We really appreciate it. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks again to Medmark for having us down at the broker meeting. Thanks to that great panel, Martha Shaden, Ryan Drant, Justin Klein, and Ali Bebahani. Great 
discussion, lots of important areas to uh, hit upon. And uh, I hope you folks found this discussion valuable. And I hope also that you'll join us at Device Talks West. It's happening October 19th and 20th. Remember, go to devicetalks.com to register. You can check out the agenda and the speaker list there. And if you use the code DTWEEKLY25, you'll save 25% off the cost of registration. So make sure you use that code. Would love to know that uh, you're listening to this podcast. Please do remember to like, follow, and subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. You'll get episodes of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, Striker Talks Podcast, and Intuitive Talks Podcast. And of course, also subscribe, like, or follow the Medtronic Talks Podcast channel. You'll get lots of Medtronic Talks coming your way. We're working on a, a ton of those. And Medtronic will be very well represented at Device Talks West. You can find me on social media. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom and on LinkedIn. You can also find Chris Newmarker there as well. He is on Twitter at Newmarker, as in a new marker, and on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker. Please share this podcast episode on your social media channels. Tag Chris and myself so we can uh, be part of that conversation. That's it, folks. Thanks again for listening. And thanks to Medmark for sponsoring this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Oh,